0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: Pain is not really your enemy. You know, pain is in a certain sense, your friend, kind of like fear is, you know. Um, If you don't have periodic pain in your life, uh, you don't have periodic fear in your life, it doesn't mean that you've mastered it. Trust me. What it really means is, is that you're living life too much in the safe zone. And if you're not out there testing yourself on a regular basis, and you're not experiencing some level of exertional pain, and you're not out there scaring yourself a little bit, then there's no way that you know what the edges of your boxes really are. I mean, let's, let's be honest about it. Every one of us has got a certain level of anxiety about life. But, you know, my experience tells me that most of that anxiety is the fact that we don't even know where we are because we're not testing ourselves at the limit.
4: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Jeff, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Well, what an honor. Thank you, and uh, just can't wait to get going. Yeah.
4: So, you know, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Gary Goldstein. And when he showed me what you were up to, I was really, really intrigued and thought, wow, this is truly a remarkable story. One we have to tell on the show. Uh, one that I felt would really move our listeners towards better outcomes in, our, in their lives. So on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your journey, your story, and how that's brought you uh, to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today?
3: Well, you know, how this thing all got started was when I was seven years old, I used to get up every morning at like uh, 5 a.m. and I'd go outside and I'd hit the softball up and down the street when I'm my little back baseball bat for hours on end where everybody else slept. And I just had Olympics on the mind. I thought the coolest thing ever would to be a member of the Olympic team and march into the parade, march into the stadium in the Parade of Nations. And that's uh, all I could think about. All I wanted to do was be an Olympian. That's all I thought about. But, but there was something that Um, i saw that i was very curious about is that that the guys that won the gold medals in the olympics they weren't the biggest and the baddest and the toughest on paper and it seems like the guys that were and the guys that should have won didn't so i thought that was very curious and i didn't really know why that was but it's something that i really needed to understand because they obviously knew something about life in themselves that the others didn't (laughs) And then I competed in my first uh, national championship, cycling championship, when I was 12 years old. And um, the next year after, uh, my parents got divorced. And it was the last time I saw my dad. And my dad was an artistic genius and a design genius, legitimately. And uh, 30 years later, I found out that he died homeless on the streets of New York City. And this kind of gave me another glimpse into the world of success. And what I realized was, is that despite my dad's talent, and his obvious will, and his technique, and his technology, neither one of those saved him. And so I realized that will and talent aren't enough, it never has been, and it never will be. And that was a very difficult time for me. And my family went on welfare, and I had a brother two and a half years uh, younger than myself, and I kind of inherited the father's role when my father left. It just about killed me emotionally and physically, but there was a very silver lining to this very difficult period, and that was the mentors that were put in my life at very critical times it told me to turn right and turn left to be able to keep my life going forward on a positive trajectory and these people that were my mentors they were iconic in their discipline and they came from all walks of life they came from business they came from sport they came from stage they also came from life itself and they shared with me every one of their secrets on how they became iconic And as uh, a result of that, and through the application of those different uh, principles and actions, I actually was able to make my dream of becoming uh, an Olympian come true. I was a member of the 1972 United States Olympic cycling team that competed uh, in the Munich Olympics, and I rode the individual spins, and I also drove the tandem, the bicycle belt, for two. So that was a major milestone. The the other gift that my mentors gave me, and I owe everything to my mentors, they also uh, gave me... Capacity to be able to uh, gain an academic scholarship to the University of Southern California, where I went because my family couldn't afford it because we were on welfare. And so I studied sports science and exercise physiology. And I actually got my bachelor's and my uh, master's degree from the University of Southern California. So I became really an expert in uh, how to craft a body that's capable of performing at the top and also creating a body that had. Uh, sustainable uh, peak output over extended periods of time, which is an absolute requirement for anybody that's uh, going to create a life of distinction. And so, Having been at the top in the Olympics and having had my knowledge of uh, body fitness and conditioning, I got the attention of a lot of people in business and in sport that actually actually asked me how to become their own champions. and So with that, uh, I worked with them very successfully, helping them achieve uh, those ambitions and more. And one of the questions I got asked a lot was, well, how do I prevent injuries? And if I do get injured, what do I do about it? And how do I get and stay well? And how do I remain and stay healthy? So I decided to go back to a chiropractic college uh, and answer that question. So I went back to college, chiropractic college, and I actually was the 2004 International Sports Chiropractor of the Year. So I was really good at what I did. And as a result of being an expert through my own experience on what it takes to get to the top as an Olympian and having my knowledge of the body through my bachelor's and master's degree at USC – and then having my knowledge of the body and wellness and injury prevention and management from becoming a chiropractor, I became like a Jiffy Lowe one-stop shopping guy to go to that could craft programs for individuals and groups and businesses to be able to get to the top and finish the job by staying there. So that was really how I uh, found my way into this uh, world of achievement and, and uh, excellence. So that was really the Cliff Notes version of that. Wow. So a lot of
4: stuff here. Uh You know, I I want to go back to the very beginning of this uh, prior to even when the story starts, you know, one of the things I'm always intrigued by is somebody's actual cultural background and upbringing What kind of a background and upbringing uh, did you have that would lead you to be a kid that wakes up at five in the morning and goes out and hits a baseball? That doesn't seem typical. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, it probably wasn't, but it certainly was typical in my mind because that's all I knew. But it probably comes from my parents because, you know, my parents were really not involved in my life. They were not malicious. They didn't put restrictions on me, so it never occurred to me that I couldn't go out and explore everything I wanted to explore. And, you know, I wasn't a malicious kid. So I wasn't, you know, prone towards getting into trouble or anything. I just thought that the world was a great big sandbox that wanted to be explored. And so I just followed every curiosity and I followed the path of my interest. And that's how I got connected with certain things and became proficient at many things.
4: Hmm. How do we get that sense of curiosity and desire to explore back into our lives when we've become adults who have been sort of lulled into submission and conformity?
3: Well, I think first and foremost is to really believe that there's really uh, no perfect path to the bigger future in a certain sense, and that there are no guarantees for the future, especially in today's rapidly and dramatically changing world. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's vital for us is that we always get up every day with a a purpose and an intent to be able to elevate our game, and to also uh, call people to uh, their bigger games. And so, When we um, regularly engage in pursuits that we're passionate about, then we serve as examples to others as to what they need to do to be able to move forward by putting passion back in their own lives.
4: Hmm. So, uh, let me ask you this. I mean, the loss of a parent uh, at any age is a really, really tragic thing to go through. And I can't imagine what it would be like at the age of 14. And I'm curious about how you navigated that time emotionally and how we navigate difficult losses and difficult periods in our lives?
3: Well, I kind of never really thought a lot about it. I mean, I thought it was sort of an odd thing to happen, but since he really wasn't part of my life, even though we lived together as a family, I quite honestly, I never remember ever sitting down as a family, eating a meal together. It never even occurred to me that we as a family did that, or that was normal because it wasn't certainly part of my normal daily life. So, at the point where my parents got divorced and we went on welfare, I thought that that was an odd thing. But, you know, I didn't let it really stop me because I was an independent kid to begin with anyhow. And, uh, you know, the loss of my dad was was tragic on a variety of different levels because I certainly didn't get the mentorship um, that I could have gotten from him that would have been immensely valuable, you know, to me. Um, but, uh, again, the the tears that, that that I shed are quite different than the tears that most people shed uh, for the loss of a parent. I mean, most people's tears that are shed are for the experiences that they had, that they never will have in the future. And for me, it was different. It's really tears of sadness for what I never had and never will have. And um, again, the, the, the silver lining for me was the fact that I did have mentors that jumped into my life that were more than parents to me than I ever could have imagined. And because there was such a diversity of them, I just felt like my life was incredibly rich by them. So, What this tells me is that anytime we find ourselves in a period of isolation or we find ourselves in a situation where we feel a little bit out of context or we feel a great sense of loss is that we should never feel like we have to fight that battle alone because we don't. I mean, that's a time where we need to be with people that understand us. That's where we need to be with people that have been down this path before. I mean, that's what friends and colleagues are are really all about.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, let me ask you this. You know, you, you've brought up the importance of mentors. And I'm really curious how you recognize uh, when mentors show up in your life. Life.
3: Well, a lot of people show up in our lives every day. And, and one of the characteristics about mentors that I found to be true is that they magically show up. It's almost as if they're angelic.
2: Hmm.
3: It's almost as if, like, they read your mind. It's like, how did you know that I was thinking about this today? And how did you know that I needed... To have this conversation? How did you know that I actually needed to hear this bit of advice? It's almost as if it's surreal in a certain sense. And that's the first key. The second key would be that um, the people are never conditional about the time of engagement. You know, They give to us unconditionally and there's never a sense or we never feel a little bit of a tug that we have to reciprocate in any way, shape or form. I think those are probably the, the two most critical things the other thing is that mentors are really good listeners mm-hmm. and they throw things out there they listen they give feedback there's a level of dialogue it's almost like there's a, a parallel management where you're interlocked arm and arm discussing the same topic one to another it's not like there's a leader and a follower it has a different level of characteristic and if those three things are there then you're to be you know pretty secure in the fact that that's probably the right person for you
4: Hmm. You know, uh, before we had our, our technical goof here, you mentioned this whole idea of, of coaches, corners, and mentor men uh, coaches, corner men. And I don't remember the third one, but I'd love for you to expand on that.
3: Well, one of the things that I've really observed in, in also my kind of in my own capacity is, uh, as I've evolved here is that, you know, there's a real distinction uh, between three people that need on our team. We, we certainly need coaches And we certainly need mentors. And we also need a third entity called a corner man. And when I look at a coach, what a coach is, a coach is an expert or a specialist in teaching us a particular skill. And it's usually a skill that's designed to be delivered at a future date. And the engagements that we have with our coaches are at very specific times, and they're very specifically driven towards a very specific purpose and outcome. So, for example, let's say I'm your voice coach, and I am going to help prepare you to be able to sing on October 17th at 7 p.m. So we get together once a week at 12 noon to twelve thirty, where we go th- through certain voice lessons. And at the end of that half hour that we're together, then I give you homework assignments and we pick up the next week. And eventually over enough time, you gain the skill to be able to perform at the level that we engaged on and do that in in, in perfect synchronicity. So that's really what a coach does. A mentor is a a little bit different. A, A mentor is generally a little bit older, but they're much more seasoned as a coach, should I say. They're Uh, usually driven towards a specific area so for example um, people have business coaches business mentors they have uh, also sports mentors that take them by the hand and guide them down the path to a specific outcome so that's really the distinction with the mentor and now we have the corner man and the corner man is uh, the rarest and the most difficult to find of all of those species for a variety of different reasons um Probably the best analogy I can give is that, uh, you know, Rocky had his corner man, Mickey. And when Rocky would get beat up during a particular round, he'd come back and Mickey would stick the stool out in the corner. Rock would sit down in it. Mickey would get out there and towel him off and sit up the cup, put some Vaseline on it, put uh, a cold pack on the bruise and give him a drink of water. And he'd say, Rock, man, you're getting hit here, man. You got to move here. You got that? Two things and you win the next round. You know what to do. Get out there and show him who's boss." And so, what they would do, they would in real time win the battle one step at a time as it was occurring in real life. And with each battle that they won, they would eventually win the war. And that's what a cornerman is. A cornerman is generally older, uh, generally older than sixty. They got to have the scar tissue, man, from doing life's journey, boots on the ground. Have to have had their fingernails dirty. They're people that have been successful in a variety of different areas. There are also people that have helped people in a variety of different areas become extremely successful. There are people that are always there. They're specialists in the whole, not just in the single part, but they're specialists in the whole. It's about how do we weave the tapestry of you together? How do we do the right thing now so that you show up and you know what to do in advance? It's almost as if you won before you've even shown up. and That's what a corner man does. And in my experience, you know, one good corner man is equal to 10 great coaches. And that's what a corner man is. But we need all three of them in our lives. Hmm. Wow.
4: A lot, a lot of gold there. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. And let's talk specifically about cycling and some of the lessons from riding that you've brought into your life and that, you know, as listeners, we can apply to our own.
3: Well, the first lesson for sure is uh you know you keep one, put, one foot in front of the other, and you're always going to make it home. I mean, there were, there were times where I would ride 150-mile training days, and, and I would be so tired I could just pull over and go to sleep in a gutter, literally, not even think of think anything of it. And so you can always make it and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. The, another really important um, lesson is is that no one wins alone. It's not possible. No one knows enough, no one is smart enough, no one has enough skills to be able to win alone. Everybody needs a team. Uh, I learned that you got to have a team. Uh, Another, you know, really important lesson uh, from cycling is that uh, you need to make pain your friend because it's it's such a difficult sport. It's really about who can endure the most pain, physical pain, uh, exertional pain. And you have to be able to endure that for sustainable periods of time at a very high level. And so you learn to make peace with that. And you learn that, you know, Pain is not really your enemy, you know? Pain is, in a certain sense, your friend, kind of like fear is, you know? Um, If you don't have periodic pain in your life, uh, you don't have periodic fear in your life, it doesn't mean that you've mastered it, trust me. What it really means is, is that you're living life too much in the safe zone, and if you're not out there testing yourself on a regular basis and you're not experiencing some level of exertional pain and you're not out there scaring yourself a little bit, then there's no way that you know what the edges of your boxes really are. I mean, let's let's be honest about it. Every one of us has got a certain level of anxiety about life. But, you know, my experience tells me that most of that anxiety is the fact that we don't even know where we are because we're not testing ourselves at the limit. I'm not talking recklessly. I'm talking responsibly. So another, you know, lesson that I've learned uh you know, from cycling is that you got to be in things for the long term. You can't just dance in and out of stuff. You know, you need to give yourself the courtesy of being so- in something long enough to be able to mature into the best that you've got to really be able to craft your capacity to be able to perform at your best. You know, and it's like if you're not experiencing bumps in the roads, then, you know, again, you're just not reaching enough. You've got to have texture. You've got to have diversity. You've got to have the willingness to be able to show up. You've got to be unconditional. You just don't show up and practice when you want. You know, when I was training for the Olympics, if you didn't show up at 830 for training, there was a padlock about the size of a basketball on the chain link fence. And you were more than welcome to watch the training from the other side of the fence. You weren't getting in. So respecting people, showing up on time, being first to be there, being the last to leave, saying thank you. These are all lessons that I've learned that are universal.
4: Wow. So... On that note, let me ask you this, and then we'll really get into the meat of what I want to talk about since we have you here uh, and the meat of your work. How do you cultivate this tolerance for pain without letting it break you in those moments when you feel really, really
3: challenged? You practice it. And I still practice it today, I go out and do intervals on my bicycle. 20 seconds on, 100%, 10 seconds off. I do 20 of them, hmm. and they start to hurt around number seven or 8 and I know i still got 12 more in front of me. And the reason why I do this is because I know that that's what life is. And the reason why I do it is that on the days that I do it, I don't want to think about them before I get there. Not because I'm afraid of them, because I'm not. But I don't want to give up any extra energy to something that's coming in the future that I know that's going to be a little bit difficult. I don't want to worry about it. I'm going to be able to show up and confront anything at any time and be able to trans- and transcend it. And I know that has, that has everything to do with how I show up. And like at the end of the day, all things being equal, the person that stays in it at the longest is the one that's going to win. That's mm-hmm. the way I do it.
4: All right. Well, let's do this. Let's get into why we really have you here, which is to talk about how we craft this capacity to perform at our absolute best and to stay there. And I'd love for you to talk about the things that you have found in your research and the foundational pieces. I know this is a big, big question, so I'd imagine we're probably going to spend the rest of the the half hour talking about this.
3: Well, you know, it's a very interesting that you'd say that because, um, you know, I'm very curious about uh, why people succeed and why people fail, particularly those who can and do and those who can and don't. You know, I'm a real student of that. And so one of the things that I've really observed is that, you know, and trust me, I've been with some amazing peak performers uh, behind the veil. You know, I've worked with U2. I've been on Branson's Island with him. Um, I've seen The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. i spent time with Tiger and with Lance, and Maria Sharapova. So there's not a lot of places that I haven't been, including uh, behind the veil in the business world and the entertainment world. And what I've observed is that there are eight very specific steps that every prolific performer goes through without exception that history is revealed, uh, that everyone goes through, that develops a very specific capacity. And that capacity enables them to be able to step up and peak perform virtually any place, any time, under any given set of circumstances. It's almost as if they own the zone and can call it up when it counts. That's the first observation. The second observation is that, Within these uh, very specific eight steps, there are patterns that occur that are sets of circumstances that history has revealed that we learn to, that we need to learn specific competencies in. And when we learn to develop competi- competency within these different uh, patterns, it gives us the skill to confidently show up and perform any place, any that's really the common thread that runs through every prolific performer in any discipline that I've ever worked with.
0: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat rounded textured or tall, whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern. That's just right because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray five in one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves Without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1.
3: Only from Rust-Oleum.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
4: I'm not
3: sure, but bring it on. (laughs) What are the eight steps? Step number one is legacy. It always begins with legacy. And people think of legacy as being something that you tabulate at life's end as a list of your successes. And I say, well, why don't we begin with legacy in mind? And the reason why I think that it's important to start with legacy in mind is that um, legacy, when it's set up proactively in advance, and it's an overarching target to shoot for, that's our case study that we will leave in the permanent record of what we did with our time and our talents it to me is the most uh, powerful force in the human universe because it calls people to a higher game as they're observing us developing transcendent lives and it helps us honor the privilege of having the good fortune to have the opportunity through this life to create a life of distinction so uh, practically speaking the reason why uh, a legacy is important is that it keeps us honest and it keeps us in integrity and it allows and it acts as a filter that we can run every uh, circumstance and opportunity through to make sure that we see how it fits into our life and into our bigger future. That's step number one, which is legacy. Step number two is a vision. I want to talk about vision. Um, I'm talking about dreams. I'm talking about goals. I'm talking about aspirations, et cetera, not in, in an elusive state, that cannot be uh, seized and grasped and in and, and manifest. But I'm really talking about uh, a dream or, or a hope, something that we can that we can make uh, real in terms of our vision. And why vision is extremely important is that vision gives us life clarity. And when we have clarity, then it gives us the ability. To be able to commit to a purpose, and every one of us needs a purpose that we can get up to each and every day that we're fully committed to, to be able to carry a life of distinction and also uh, make a contribution to other people's lives. That's step number two. Step number three is mindset. And when I talk about mindset, I'm not talking about meta mantras. I'm not talking about uh, a perfect uh, GPA or 180 IQ, I'm not talking about, when I talk about mindset, I'm talking about the ability to identify and capitalize on life's best opportunities and avoid life's worst potholes. And there's kind of like two parts to this, you know, our human mindset is basically made up of two parts. Part of us is afraid of success. And we have a lot more confidence in our ability to fail than in our ability to succeed. But then we have another side to us. And that other side to us is that side that wants to become our own champion to create a life of distinction. And uh, the reason why I know that we have this other side to us that we don't really talk about is that I've never met a person that could wait to get up and fail. Can you imagine that? (sighs) I can't wait to get up and fail. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. So we need to understand the fact that we have this war waging within us. that's 24 hours a day, every day of our life, between that something within us that wants to keep us small, it's pessimistic, and then there's something very big in us that wants to create a life of extraordinary achievement and excellence to honor the privilege of being here. There's a battle that every one of us fights day in and day out. Step number four is called the bass. And when I talk about bass, I'm not talking about bass guitar, basement. I'm talking about building a foundation of resources, both personal and material, that we're going to need to be able to complete the journey to become our own champion. We may need some personal skills, perhaps a little bit more personal knowledge, and certainly we need time we need team we need resources we need space and we need equipment and no responsible champion ever begins a process without properly vetting that they have the right plan and they also have enough resources to be able to see the process through from start to finish and then step number five is called the climb and i'm not talking about climbing the wall like i can't take this anymore somebody get me out of here i I really i'm literally talking about The 10,000 hours in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, that it says that it takes to create the capacity to be able to perform at a level consistent with our ambitions. And uh, the climb uh, develops and helps us create and craft the persistence and the perseverance to be able to push, to be able to keep moving towards the barriers that are required for us to ultimately gain the skill to be able to perform at the level consistent with our goals and our ambitions. And then step number six is called Elevation. And elevation is interesting because elevation is a point where we've had a breakout performance. Like, let's say that you're an athlete and you perform for the first time in line with your expectation. For example, you compete in a national competition for the first time. You actually beat somebody that's performing at the national level. That's really your breakout performance. But elevation step six is where we actually duplicate the breakout performance. So we own the technical process of excellence. And a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people, when they've had their breakout performance, they start shortcutting or they start changing their team thinking that they've already arrived before they've even mastered the process of what it takes to perform at the level that they've just proven themselves to be capable of doing. It's a fatal mistake, and I see this all the time. So once we've developed the capacity to own the technical process of our discipline, that's where we're performing at the top of the best of the best, and that begins step number seven, which is Adaptation. And when I talk about adaptation, I'm not talking about adapting down to fit in with the status quo. I'm talking about adapting up to the highest level of performance to remain relevant in today's rapidly and dramatically changing world. And one of the things that I've uh, observed here is that when people arrive at the top and they're playing with the big boys, they're not, they're not ready for the acceleration and intensity of the responsibility of performing at that level. They have absolutely no idea of what they're gonna be confronting. So it's absolutely essential in adaptation that we have our guides and we also have our adaptation team in place to help us be able to learn that skill so we're able to capitalize on performing at the top and becoming a prolific performer there. So once we've matched our personal capacity with our technical capacity to perform at the highest level, then we've actually mastered the process. And once we've mastered the achievement process, and it actually is a skill, none of us are born with it, it's coached, and it's also bred. Then we begin the eighth step that every prolific performer goes through, and that's called riding the wave. And the way that the prolific performers do it is that they don't go after every opportunity. Most people do that, or they can't stand giving up an opportunity to someone else. But that's not the way the big boys do it. The big boys choose only those ambitions and goals that have appropriate risk and appropriate return. And they prepare for the goal, they perform to achieve it. And once they've achieved it, Then they pause, and they rest on the other side of it, and they pick the next goal. Then they prepare, they perform, they achieve it, and then they pause. They actually ride away. Most people don't do that. Most people are on terminal burnout. They never give themselves pause to be able to balance the effort with the recovery. And As a result of that, they blow themselves up predictably either through a very bad relationship breakout or a catastrophic health issue at a very untimely point and their evolution to create their biggest future and the greatest legacy. So those are the eight steps that every prolific performer goes through in sequence without exceptions. There are no exemptions. Mm. Wow.
4: There's so much there. I'm mean, going to have to go back and, and you know, listen to that probably a dozen times. <laughs> so one of the other things you mentioned uh, before we got into the eight steps is you know, certain patterns that you saw yes. and also developing certain competencies. Can you expand on that and talk about that in a bit more depth?
3: Yeah, I can. So for example, let, let's take a very typical pattern. You know, most people think, well, um, if I rest too much, then it means I'm not capable of performing well. Well, whoever came up with that? I mean, that, that sounds good, doesn't, doesn't it? But, but, but there's certainly absolutely no uh, proof that that happens to be the case. That, that, that's a very, very typical pattern. Another uh, a very typical pattern is is that when a person's on the verge of a personal breakthrough, that they choke every time. And what they do, they, they run back and they do the familiar rather than do the extraordinary 1% to 2% that has to go right to be able to take themselves to the next transcendent level. That, that's another very, very uh, obvious pattern. So when you look at these patterns, there's always a principle that you apply to the pattern to be able to create the readiness to capitalize on the opportunity. So, for example, if the person is at a place where they, once again, are at a career breakthrough moment, they practice and they apply the skill that has to go right they don't worry about all the things that could go wrong and you probably notice that most people worry about all the things that have got to go wrong rather than what's got to go right for example i helped a guy win a gold medal in the 2012 olympics in the long jump and the problem was i got the call two and a half weeks before the olympic final and what i dissected it the problem being is that he felt that he needed to put in the perfect jump to win the gold medal And everybody else around him thought that too. And he had the best coaches, he had the best chiropractor, he had the best equipment, he had the best of everything. But everybody was absolutely convinced that the one detail that they weren't aware of was going to make the difference between earning the gold medal and not. And I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, the thing that's going to win the gold medal, and we know that you're capable of that because you're currently leading the world championship, is doing a little bit less to pull back and let your mind, body, and your soul peak so that when it comes down to, performing at that transcendent level you're going to be able to do that and there's two things that you need to do and you're going to win the gold medal number one is is that don't change your warm-up you change your warm-up and then your body gets scared of what doesn't want to come out and play it's afraid so don't change your warm-up so it's the body's clue that it's safe to come out and play at the highest level then the second thing you need to do is make sure you get the first four steps of your run up right so your foot hits the board correctly you do that you don't change your warm-up and you win the gold medal two things it's not about perfection It's about the one to 2% that counts. Hmm. So the guy won the gold medal. So that's a perfect example of a pattern and how it is that that fear-based survival side of ourselves has its own conclusions that never serve us well. And so that's why we need to always defer to the champion's way of doing things because it's never proven itself to be wrong.
4: You know, it's funny to, to hear you describe that. Uh, it reminds me of a process that I'm going through right now with our annual event, the Instigator Experience. We've done it once before. And amazingly enough, you're right. I know how to do all the right things. <laughs> but all the things that might go wrong are what are scary, scaring me.
3: <laughs> but that's classic. See, Uncle Jeff knows. I mean, that's what I do. I, look, I'm the corner man. I, seriously, I'm, I'm people's corner man. So that's what I do. You know, I take people... Uh, Olympians, so to speak, and business and in sport and also thought leadership. And I talk to them, and we craft one or two things that have got to go right for them to be able to win their next gold medal, to be able to make the next million dollars for them to move to the next level. And this is especially critical in situations where everything's on the line. That's what I do. Hmm.
4: Okay. So I I want to get it back to this idea of situations where everything is on the line, but let's come back to that uh, because I do have a question around that. So uh, let me ask you this. You you brought up the idea of legacy and vision. And, you know, I've had numerous conversations with people about this. I've had Simon Sinek here to talk about, you know, starting with why uh, I've had, you know, every single person imaginable talk to me about this question. And it, I never come up with a very, very consistent answer around this. It all almost seems esoteric. How, you, how do you – is legacy one of those things that reveals itself to you with time, or do you sit down and say, this is what the legacy is going to be when I'm done?
3: Well, it's a process that needs to be evolved over time, and if it's not evolving, then we're not keeping pace with our own evolution. Hmm. But you do need at least a starting point, and you make it up as you go. And my suggestion is is that you follow the path of your inquiry. Because like one of the things that I learned, uh, I think I mentioned this, that, that I was a nationally known uh, glass sculptor that showed in the best galleries in New York City. And what I found that was when I drew a study and then I did the artwork based on the study, it was a technical exercise and it came out lifeless. But if I let the process of crafting the piece kind of tell me what I need to do next, then I would create something bigger than I could have ever imagined that was a real living sculpture that had a life to it that people ask me, how'd you do it? And will I follow the directive of what it showed me to do rather than trying to rigidly control the outcome of what it was to be? And I think that we need to bring that uh, spirit uh, really to the concept of how we evolved and how we create our, our own legacy because it's a work in progress, but we have to be responsible to that.
4: Mm-hmm. So one other thing I want to ask you about is um, this idea of elevation. Um, where you get to that moment and, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about it. You mentioned sort of the astronauts and then people, uh, or, you know, I was reading actually in Tony Robbins new book, how astronauts after they've achieved that sort of elevation, they become depressed because their identity is so caught up in elevation and, uh, how do you avoid that trap? As I, I
3: well, well, let, let me see this. You, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I agree with what, what was just said there, okay. because I know that from the Olympic experience. It's like I went to the Olympics and that, mm-hmm. that was my landing on the moon experience, because sure. when I came back from the Olympics, I couldn't relate to stuff, but, but not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It's like I had such an extraordinary experience. I saw that what was possible. And I felt that I needed to share what I saw was possible in terms of human achievement with everybody mm-hmm. and to be able to craft a model and a structure that allows us to get there. Because, you know, we can't go someplace that we don't have the skill to be able to get to. So I think in a certain sense, really, it, it, it shows us what's possible. And there are methods that enable us to be able to get there predictably. It's just that those methods are very unconventional and they're very unorthodox and they're very difficult for the human fear-based mentality to be able to engage successfully because it's a little bit spooky. Mm -hmm. So
4: I want to ask you another question. And this is something that actually came up from a listener uh, that that said, you know, you you've, you've been around really, like you said, behind the veil of some of the most amazing performers on our planet. And the question about Lance Armstrong and your thoughts on him came up from somebody who listens to our show. (laughs)
3: Well, you know, Lance is an interesting guy, and, and from a variety of perspectives. And uh, you know, I was the personal chiropractor at all seven of his Tour de France, uh, Tour de Frances. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, let me say this: is that like, um, I think Lance is a very interesting case study for a variety of different reasons, and the situation that he currently is involved in, I think, is its own case study that. People should study very carefully because I think that there's, you know, many lessons that we can learn from the richness of life's Lance, of Lance's life so far. And a couple of those lessons are, at least in my mind, are this, is that first and foremost, if we expect to learn our life lessons from perfect role models, well, don't plan on learning much from anybody. And I think we'll all agree that perhaps what Tiger Woods did to his wife wasn't the best thing, but does that mean that we can't learn something about golf from Tiger? And the other thing about this is about the whole concept of judgment, because, you know, if we look at Lance as a deity, or we look at him as a singular demon and devil, which I never thought he was either, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we really miss the chance to learn some of the valuable lessons and one of the valuable lessons is about you know how our judgment excludes us from learning things from people that we could learn things through from and from yeah and that to be able to learn things from that we need to get and come to the middle of things to be able to see things for really what they are and it's really uh, we're the ones that in a certain sense can get discredited from something that we could learn that could be very significant from if we come from a place of judgment. And I believe that those are some of the important lessons that we can certainly learn from, you know, Lance's uh, situation.
4: Hmm. Well, let's go back to that idea of every, you know, those moments when everything is on the line, you know, we know everything that you're talking about makes perfect and practical and logical sense. How, how do we navigate those moments when we feel like everything is on the line or when everything really is in fact on the line?
3: There's two things. You have to be honest about yourself. It's like, are we really prepared to do this? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. And if I'm prepared, uh, do I need to talk somebody to somebody in advance? And the reality of this is, is that, you know, most of the moments where everything's on the line, um, you can predict those in advance because most of the good things that happen, most of the bad things that go south, uh, you can prevent them to a very high degree because a lot of the tragedies that we see are really uh, the outcome of people's inability to outrun their blind spots. And everybody's got blind spots. And so one of the things that I found that's absolutely uh, essential and and kind of the champion's golden rule is you do the homework and the test is easy because you know what to do before you even show up. So really... If we can take you, and I mentioned and alluded to the eight steps that every prolific performer goes through to develop the capacity to perform at their best level consistently, is that if I can take you and I can locate the step that you're currently in, then history tells us exactly what we need to do right now to either carry momentum forward, uh, thread the needle of a situation that absolutely 100% has to go right right now or uh, to be able to jumpstart a stall. And and the other thing that it does is that since history has revealed these eight steps, and the one thing I'll say about history is that history doesn't lie either, is that if we can locate the step that we're in, we can actually peek around the corner, and we know what the next step is that's coming, and we also know the patterns that occur in the step because history has also revealed that to us as well. So there's a high degree of capacity to be able to anticipate and have a, a state of readiness to be able to engage the unforeseen that most people never consider. You know, most people, quite honestly, they're on daily survival. Mm -hmm. They have no idea where they are and they have no idea what to do next. And and this is also epidemic in the CEO world as well as the aspiring CEO.
4: Mm.
3: And the other thing that I would also say, and that's one of the reasons why, if we go back to my dad, you know, the tragedy that didn't have to happen, he didn't have a blueprint. He didn't know the eight steps. He had no idea where he was or what to do. He had no idea what was coming next. He had no idea. So as a result of that, had he had the blueprint, another thing would have been to have had a corner man. Because remember, a corner man is on call 24-7. And because the corner man has a vast reservoir of experience, because he's been successful himself in many areas, and he's helped people in many areas become successful, he can read the terrain. And he can tell you what you need to do now to be able to make things happen. He can tell whether or not you're ready or not. And if you are, you engage. If you're not, then we need to kind of create some other strategy until we develop the readiness to be able to engage. Those are two things that you absolutely 100% have to have. Look, here's the deal. The the current uh, success model is this, is that dream really big and want it bad enough, have a good plan and work hard, and you're going to close the gap. And well, that doesn't always work out so well. You know, there's plenty of people with well and talent that try really hard that don't close the gap. And part of the discovery here is that the gap's not the gap. You know, the gap is really an active, living, breathing, three-dimensional space it really, the eight steps that history has revealed sit in that really control the path hmm. and set the tone for how do you manage and how do you actually close it. So if we don't have that reference, then we're in a certain sense flying blind and we're driven by hope with our fingers crossed. But if we add the eight steps and then we know what's coming, then we're driven by predictability and we also have certainty. Because again, you know, history is a great teacher. It's just a matter of locating where we are and knowing what has to go right right now And then also peeking around the corner to know what's coming in the future so that we can be ready for it. Because the punch that we should all fear is the one that we don't see that's coming. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And when you're looking at it through the close the gap model, it's very difficult to do that. Because all we have is let's try harder. Let's get a better plan. Let's get more detail. But it doesn't show you. It's more likely that the stuff of life is going to take you out rather than the business plan or the detail. Quite honestly. Wow. That's what I do. I have people (laughs) in business. And in sport, avoid the catastrophe. Because I, I can tell people, if I know where they are, I could tell them what the next four steps are going to be. And I can tell them what we need to be ready for. Let's pay attention to, let's devote our effort and our energy to the stuff that counts. Let's not worry about the stuff that may happen that has low probability. Mm-hmm. But unless we have the ability to know what that is, then we're flying blind. Amazing. I, I, I don't believe in flying blind. I, I, I don't believe that. Wow. Let me say some other thing here while I'm on this rampage. Is Look, there's only one of us in all of creation, right? And there's 7 billion people on this planet like right now. I I don't know when the first person put the first footprint on this planet, but there's been a lot of people. And there's only one of us in all of creation. Nobody has your gene pool. Nobody has your vision. Nobody has your circumstances. Nobody has your capacity. And When I think about that, I think about when I got asked by the iconic show Sunday morning – with Charles Osgood, I was asked, is, does winning matter? And I said, yeah, it matters. And he said, why? I said, because I've never met a person that could wait to get up and fail. And he said, well, tell me more. I said, I will. I said, every time we win, that's how we say thank you to our parents that gave us the gene pool. I say that every time we win, we say thank you to our friends that were always there through thick and thin. every time we win, we thank thank you to our mentors that gave of themselves unconditionally to this. Every time we win, it's how we... Uh, show other people that an elevated life is possible. And all I can tell you is that we have an obligation to be the best that we can be because that's how we honor the process. And I can also tell you this, is that success is not an accident. Michael Jordan, you YouTube, Frank Lloyd Wright, they're not an accident. They're the outcome of very deliberate actions consistently applied. And if you don't know where you are and you can't put a name on it, then how do we know what to do and how do we know what's coming? We don't we're vulnerable. And I don't like playing the game like that because there's only one of you in this dimension and all of this creation and you count and what you do is going to make a difference in the human record. And that's what I'm committed to.
4: That was poetic. Uh, So Jeff, I'm going to close with one final question, which is how I close all our interviews uh, here at the unmistakable creative. What is it that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: Having the courage to show up and commit to what's in front of you Hmm. because life shows us step by step where we need to go to create a life of distinction, not only for us, but to honor the privilege and to thank those that enabled it to happen, but also to create our immortal footprint in the human archive for what we did with our time and our talent so that we can turn our back and walk away knowing that we've stepped up with full commitment. That's what makes people unmistakable. You will never forget the legacy of that person that does that.
4: Brilliant. Well, Jeff, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners. Uh, I have a feeling this is going to be one of those episodes that uh, I myself will be you know, replaying multiple times.
3: Well, you know, the pleasure is mine, and I really appreciate uh, so much, uh, Serena, your uh, willingness and your confidence in having me on the show. And I'll just finish by saying that there's always room at the top for the best. And if there's ever a time in human history where our communities need beacons of hope, leadership, courage, and sanity, it's now. And I just encourage every one of us to be the best that we can be so that we can be that person in our communities.
4: I think that makes a perfect way to uh, wrap up our conversation. For those of you guys listening, I will link up Jeff's website and some of the things he's mentioned in the show notes, and we'll wrap with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.